Now this morning, before the kids go off, I just want to give a quick shout out to the moms in the room uh, on this Mother's Day. And when I say moms, I don't simply mean biological moms. Um, I certainly do mean that. Um, you know, I was raised by my biological mother, but I also had a nanny who was with me for almost 10 years that mothered me in this really beautiful way. I also had a stepmom. I also had an aunt who didn't have biological children of her own, but also cared for me in a motherly kind of way. I had all this constellation of people, these women that loved me in profound ways. And so this morning, I want to sort of just give a shout out and an encouragement to the mothers in the room, whether you are mothering a biological child of your own, whether it is someone, a child that God has put in your path, whether it's a niece or a nephew, just want to turn to the gospel of Matthew for a second. Jesus says this, that God is like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. And for you who have mothered, I just want to say that you are acting like God, gathering these little ones under your wings, protecting and caring for them. And at Wellspring, I want to say a quick prayer for you because I know mothering is hard. But I also want to just say that we think it is beautiful. And one of the ways we want to just sort of emphasize that is as you leave, there's going to be roses at the different exits. Uh, And I just want you... If you identify as a mother, I want you to grab one of those as a way of saying, hey, God sees what I am doing and he thinks it is beautiful. So feel free to do that as you leave. For now, I just want to take a second and just pray for all the moms in the room. Pray for all of you who mother uh, because it is a glorious and a difficult task. Let me just pray for you for a minute. God, I just want to, in this moment, just raise up all the mothers, all the people who mother in this room. God, that you would smile upon them. God, that you would give them the power and the grace that they need to love as you love. And in those moments of difficulty, that you would give them kindness and you would give them your love and your strength to endure. In those moments of joy and celebration, you would help them to just enter into the joy of the gift that the children are in their lives. God, be with them. May they know your hope today. May they know your love today. May they know your kindness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Moms, you rock. And if you're a kid, Miss Jeannie is over there, and she would love to hang out with you. So why don't the kids go over there? I'm going to walk right around. There you go, Dylan. You got it. So kids are with Miss Jeannie. But kids, you should be jealous because we're talking about superheroes. So you might be wondering, you come in today, and you're like, superheroes on a Sunday morning church? This is weird. Uh, and in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Think about what a superhero does. Big picture, what does a superhero do? What does a superhero do? They save. I mean, could there be a more biblical message than actually looking at superheroes? Maybe not, as we'll see. Now, so what we're going to do in this sermon, we're going to start with a basic overview of superhero movies a little bit, uh, and then we're going to lean into what, what is the kind of saving that we need? We're going to do a little contrast, a little 
sort of royal rumble between a few different superheroes contrasted to Jesus and see who wins, see who's better. Uh, It's going to be fun. But actually, I think if you showed up today interested in some theology, we're actually going to get into some interesting theology through the lens of superheroes. So be ready. This is going to be an adventure. All right, so let's start with this. Do you have a favorite superhero movie? And if you do, I want you to shout it out. No one? Black Panther? Dude, they're coming so fast. I can't. So I heard Black Panther. Everything else was a blur. What else? Wonder Woman? Captain America? Toby Maguire. All right. Very specific. Okay. I like it. I'm going to say something similar, like Ben Affleck is not Batman. Like, I just can't, I can't do it. Can't do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Iron Man. Okay. Which one? There you go. Right. There's all these superhero movies. I was reading the other day online. uh, One of the commentators said that cinemagraphically, if that's a word, that this is the age of the superhero. Kind of an interesting thing to say, but then when you actually look at movie production, like all these amazing actors are actually going to superhero movies. If you notice that, it's not just big budgets, but all these actors are going there. If you look since 2008, uh, have you ever heard of like Marvel's universe? Here's a picture of it, right? All these movies, since 2008, 22, Marvel has produced 22 different movies in the MCU, right? the Marvel Cinegraphic Universe, right? This huge, it's almost like a myth. It's almost like a Greek myth, this convergence of all these stories that come together in this epic drama. Now, if you lean into superhero movies a little bit, you start to see some different themes that repeat. One of the things that's interesting about superhero movies is there's always good and evil. And evil is always real. It's not like, Oh, evil is just the absence of the good. No, no, it's like, no, there's actually some, some bad guy out there who's trying to destroy the world. And almost always in these movies, it requires sacrifice for the good to prevail. If you think about it, like, think about uh, you have the first Avengers movie, right? Loki's coming to Earth with his horde of aliens, right? And then you have Iron Man carrying this nuke, right? Uh, kind of... Bl- It's kind of, you can't really see it, or maybe you guys got a better view over here. There you go, TV. This is a point for the TV side, right? Iron Man is carrying the nuke in through the wormhole, right? He's willing to sacrifice himself. You see this at the end of the second Dark Knight movie, right? Harvey Dent, you know, Batman takes on the guilt of Harvey Dent, the sacrificial theme. There's also this kind of obsession with the end of the earth. Have you noticed that? It's like all these movies, and probably because it sells tickets, but there's kind of this fascination in our culture right now with the end of the earth. We have this like deep fear of, oh, are things just going to get worse, right? Infinity Wars and Thanos is like the personification of this, right? This guy collects all these different rocks on his ring, right? And then at the end, you know, he snaps his finger and he eliminates half of the human race, half of the universe, Right? We have this obsession. If you think about the second Avengers movie and Ultron, right? Ultron is the judgment of humankind, right? And they have to stop him. There's this fascination in our culture with good and evil. And ultimately, will good triumph in the end? 
Above it all, though, I would say there, one of the defining elements of the superhero genre is this idea of saving. You know, the, the hero is either chemically empowered, ultra-rich, or an alien, or some combination of those, right? And we have this fascinating in our culture between we kind of want, we love this, right? We would not spend billions of dollars on these movies if we didn't love and weren't fascinated with this idea of being saved. And yet, we have this resistance to it. We love the idea of someone saving, but we don't actually want to personally feel like we need saving. So we envision ourselves as Superman, not as the one being, one being saved by Superman, right? This is really epitomized in uh, the Superman, second Superman movie uh, more recently, where Lois Lane uh, writes this editorial. So Superman leaves, he goes on this long journey, they don't think he's gonna come back, and she wins a Pulitzer Prize for writing an essay. And this essay is entitled, The World Doesn't Need a Savior. And, you know, everyone is like, yes, we don't need Superman. We don't need a savior. And then Superman comes back. And there's this fascinating interaction between Lois Lane and Superman. This is what he says. Lois, you say the world doesn't need a savior. But every day I hear people crying for one. And it's this fascinating, I think, uh, window into our cultural moment where there's this profound resistance to the need for a savior. And yet, in the day-to-day of our lives, we often are looking for something beyond ourselves to rescue us. There's a professor at a Western up in Portland. His name is Todd Miles. Super interesting guy. He's a theology professor he wrote this book. And the book is called uh, Superheroes Can't Save You. And it's this really funny, funky, awesome book. And this is what he writes. This is sort of his major point. The superheroes represent humankind's best efforts to create saviors. Demigods made in our own image. Beings who are able to rescue us from the horrors that accost us all as humans. The thing is, our best attempts to create such heroes fall desperately short of what we actually need. Right? So in all these stories, right, superheroes protect us from the rogue villain, right, who's coming to, you know, rob us or destroy our planet or whatever. What is clear, though, is that these superheroes cannot address the deepest needs that we have as creatures on an incredibly broken planet, as creatures that are separated from God. And part of the complexity is that superhero movies, most of the time, sort of say, hey, evil is out there, and all you need is a super person to stop the evil that is out there. It doesn't deal with the complexity that if the evil is not simply out there, but also within us, what do we do? Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a Russian writer and he, uh, he knows, I think, better than everyone, right, that evil could be out there. He was imprisoned in uh, the gulag uh, in Siberia. He knows the oppressive Russian regime firsthand, right? He has this horrible experience. And he writes this book called Gulag Archipelago, and he writes this. If only it were so simple, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And if it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us 
and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Right? And this is where superheroes become a little less helpful. They're less good at heart surgery than they are at saving us from Ultron. Right? They're better at stopping the evil out there, but they don't really have a solution to deal with the, the evil within us. I think most of us would admit we're kind of a mixed bag. Now you might be sitting there like, no, I'm not. All I have to do to test that hypothesis is ask your spouse or your roommate or the person in the cube next to you. And I'm pretty much guaranteed if I said, are they a mixed bag? They'd be like, yes. Right? Hypothesis disproven, you know? See, our culture is interesting. It's so taken by superheroes. What I want to do this morning is kind of follow Miles's lead and lean into, okay, so who is Jesus when we compare him to these superheroes? And specifically, what is it the hero? What is it the savior that we actually need? Miles did something really interesting in his book. What he does is he actually takes some of the superheroes and he actually uses them to paint a picture of Jesus, but actually a deficient view of Jesus that actually the superheroes presented are actually not as good as Jesus. What we call these ideas throughout history are heresies. So these are ideas of Jesus that are not right, right? They get it wrong. And so he comes up with these things like the Batman heresy, the Superman heresy, the Ant-Man heresy. We're not going to go through all of them, but we will hit those three. We're going to look at the Batman heresy. We're going to look at the Superman heresy and the Ant-Man heresy to realize who Jesus is and how he saves us. Let's talk about Batman first. One, because he's my favorite. And two, he's fascinating. So as I said earlier, my favorite by far is the Dark Knight. Aflac just has nothing on that trilogy. I just can't do it, you know? But one of the things that's really interesting about Batman is he has no superpowers. Right, there's this moment in Avengers, I think it's uh, Captain America's like, so what's your power? And he's like, I'm rich, right? That's basically Batman, right? He has tons of money, he's trained at street fighting, and he's very creative. But he's not really a super person in all that, you know, it's not all that super. He's slower than the Flash, he can't breathe underwater like Aquaman, and pretty much anything physical Superman is better at. The thing that's fascinating in our cultural moment is most people think of Jesus this way as well, or certainly a lot of people do. Right? Oh, Jesus, oh, he's just an awesome teacher. Right? He's, he's just wise. Oh, he's really good. He's loving. But he's just a human. Maybe he's smart, but he's no different than Batman, really. I think this kind of captures our cultural moment and people's take on Jesus. Often they're like, He's just a human, no different than Batman. But when we turn to the scriptures, we see, actually, that's not the case at all. If you look at the New Testament in particular, you'll see that from beginning to end, Jesus is presented as not only divine, not only human, but divine. You go to uh, John 1. What does he say? The word in the beginning was the word, was Jesus, right? And the word was with God. Jesus was in the beginning, he was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is actually God. 
John 5. Right? Jesus says he is going to judge the earth. Right? You cannot do that if you are Batman. John 17, Jesus claims to be with the Father in glory at the beginning of all time. In John 20, uh, Thomas, after Jesus is raised, he's like, I am not going to believe any of this until I can actually touch Jesus. You remember that scene? Jesus shows up and he touches him and he says this, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't in this moment be like, no way, you know, whoa, back off, Thomas. I'm not actually God. No, he's like, no, that's true. Yeah, I am Lord and I am God. He's not just a human. Philippians 2.2, again, Jesus is the form of God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, right? The fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. Right? He is the embodiment of all of Israel's hopes. He is the creator and redeemer of all things. Jesus is human, but he is also God. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and he's sort of pushing into this cultural moment where people are like, oh, Jesus is just like Batman. He's just a human, you know? He's just really good at being a human, you know? He says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Have you met him? Yeah. Or else... He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right? The Batman heresy is to say that Jesus is just a human being. In the Gospels, Jesus forces us to choose, as C.S. Lewis says, right? He's like, you got to make a choice here. You can either crucify him, you can stone him, or you can give up everything to follow him. But we have to make a choice. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important that Jesus is actually God and not simply an awesome human being? Why is that actually important, right? When we consider what do we actually need for a savior, why is it important that Jesus is actually God? Well, if we go back to the scriptures, two in particular, just leap off, leap off the page. Jonah says this, Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right, that God is the one who saves, not us. Isaiah 43, 11 says this, I am the Lord, besides me there is no Savior. Right, that God is the one who rescues, God is the one who saves, not us. Not Iron Man, not Batman, not someone who's sort of genetically modified. God takes on human flesh to save us. Right, Batman might be able to save you from a mugger, but he cannot save humanity and he cannot save the evil that cuts through every human heart. 
right? The creator is the redeemer in the story of the scriptures, right? The one who created all things at the beginning is the one who rescues all things at the end. Okay, so that's Batman. Now, of course, Jesus is God. He's not just like Batman, but what about Superman, right? Now we're going up a level, right? What about Superman, right? Superman, interesting guy. He's the lone survivor of the planet Krypton. He's been raised as a human. And if you watch the movies back in the day, I have to do a little cultural education at the moment. So a while ago, there were these things called phone booths. My kids uh, and my wife went to a garage sale the other day and my daughter and son picked up a rotary phone. Rotary phone is one where you go like this, for those of you who are like under 35 maybe, and um, picked up this rotary phone and they're like trying to do it. And they're like, why isn't it working? Because they didn't realize that phones at what point had to be plugged in. All right, so rectangle, this is called a phone booth. It's about this high and you'd walk into it and there's a plugged in phone. And back in the day, in the 70s, when Superman would go into these phones, he would go in as Clark Kent, and he would come out as Superman, right? And he'd fly away. There's a trick question, maybe trick, maybe not. You'll never know. Well, you will in a second. So this is my question. Is Clark Kent a human? Yeah, right? He's not. Right? Clark Kent doesn't actually exist. Clark Kent is a disguise that Superman wears. It's a facade. What's interesting, though, is sometimes people approach, have approached, especially historically, Jesus this way. Right? The church has called this docetism. It's a Greek word, dokin, meaning to seem. So throughout church history, not only have people said, oh, Jesus isn't God, he's only a human. They've also said, hey, he's only God, and he's actually not a human. Uh, this is, throughout church history, this has been a fighting grounds among people of faith to say, who actually is Jesus? Todd Miles calls this the Superman heresy, right? To say that Jesus actually isn't God or actually isn't a human. He's just like Clark Kent. He's just God in disguise. He's not fully human. But if you actually look at the New Testament, what you'll see really quickly is that one of the first tests of orthodoxy is the humanity of Jesus. This happens uh, in 1 John 4, 2 and 2 John 7. 2 John 7 reads this way. For many deceivers have gotten, gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So actually one of the early deceptions in church history was to say that Jesus was not fully human. Pretty interesting. What we see, right? John 1, 14, right? The word became flesh. The New Testament says God actually becomes a human being. He gets tired, right? He's born of a woman. He's raised as a boy. He gets thirsty. He gets hungry. He grows weary. He even dies. He's resurrected into a bodily, into a human body, bodily form. He's even tempted as a human. He has feelings of a human. John Calvin has this great quote. He says this, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Like he knows what it's like to be a human being. He is fully a human. Hebrews, 
Hebrews 4.15 says this, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he is fully human. And the question is, you might be wondering, well, I get why he needs to be God, but why does he need to be fully human? Why does that matter? Two things in particular stand out. One, if Jesus is not human, then none of his teaching, then we could not follow or lean into or actually follow, actually do what he says to do in the New Testament. Right? You'd read the Sermon on the Mount, you'd read the Gospels and be like, I can't do that, I'm not God. But he's fully human. So what that means is he has given us things that we can do because just as he is fully human, we are too. Secondly, and this is more germane to our topic today, right? In the Bible, sin is a human problem. Adam and Eve, right? God creates human, human beings, Adam and Eve, but then human beings go their own way. Later, God forms a sacrificial system and in the people of Israel, right? And they have these animals that they sacrifice, right? To atone with God. And then when you fast forward to the first century, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice, right? To reunite people with God. In order to do that, they need a full human to step in the place of humans, right? Because sin is a human problem. And only a full human can fully address that problem. Miles says it well. He says this. So if sin is a human problem that requires a human solution and salvation belongs to the Lord, how can anybody be saved? The answer lies in the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But Jesus is the Son of David, a human like us. He could offer himself as a substitute for human sin because he is one of us. If Jesus was not truly and fully human, unlike Clark Kent, then he could not die for our sin. If he only seemed to be human, then there is no gospel, no good news, right? Because Jesus is fully human and fully God, he can save us. Now, as we lean into this, we could go through, Miles has, goes through the Hulk and Thor and all these other superhero characters. We could go down that list. But I actually want to do something else. We know Jesus is fully God, and we know that he is fully man, that he is not, he is greater than Batman, greater than Superman. And we have, we have to be wary of ways in which we can fall into the Superman and the Batman heresies in everyday life, right? Downplaying the divinity and the humanity, humanity of God. But actually, probably among Christians, the most common heresy is actually the Ant-Man heresy. Let me explain. All right, so Ant-Man. If you don't know who Ant-Man is, Ant-Man is this guy named Scott Lang. Now, Scott Lang has this suit. And this suit, if you've seen any of the movies, allow him to shrink. So he's super tiny, right? And then he can be medium-sized, which is like, you know, a six-foot man or whatever. And then he becomes giant man. If you've watched Civil War, you've seen him sort of do this. Ant-Man can be small, medium, and large. But at all those times, Ant-Man cannot be small, medium, and large at the same time. He has to choose. Now, when you get into Christian doctrine and you wonder, how does this relate to Jesus? How does this relate to God? Let's do it. We have to go back a little bit in history. So in the second, third centuries, the early church is trying to figure out, so how do we make sense of this Trinity thing? 
this God who's fully God and fully man, three in one. And there's this guy named Sibelius, and he proposes that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, actually, they're not really separate, is his argument. What he says is, they're kind of like different costumes that each person of the Trinity wears. So like, you know, you try on the Son, try on the Father, try on the Spirit, but they're really one thing wearing in different modes or different personas or wearing different facades or costumes. The heresy is called modalism. That basically there are not three beings in the Trinity, but actually it's one being that has three different expressions. Now you might be like, I've never heard of that. Have you heard of this? Some people will say, oh, you know, the Trinity, how do I explain it? Well, the Trinity's like water. You ever heard of this? Trinity's like water. Uh, it's just one thing in three different states, right? It's liquid, it's vapor, it's solid, right? It can change. My friends, that is modalism, right? You cannot be uh, liquid, vapor, and water uh, all, or, and ice all at the same time. You got to pick and choose. That is different than the historical understanding of the Trinity. That is what we call the Ant-Man heresy. That is saying that God has to pick and choose what being he is at different times. There are five central affirmations to the Trinity. The first is this, God is one. The second, pretty similar, is that the Father is God. The third is that the Son is God. The fourth is the Holy Spirit is God. The fifth is God is not the Son and is not the Spirit. Now, if you're more of a visual person, I can sort of do a quick diagram of this. So if we have God, right? God is one, right? It's God. But we also realize that the Father is also God, right? So the Father is God. But we also realize, right, the Son is God. Put a little S up here, right? The Son is also God. But we also see, according to this, right, the Holy Spirit is God. We'll put him a little bit over here. Right, so that's also, Holy Spirit is also God. Green for yes, but we also realize, right, that the Father is not the Son. They're not the same, right? And the Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. That's a, that's a pictorial way of describing the five affirmations of the Trinity. Now, you might be wondering, okay, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't really thought about that. Can you show me this in the Bible? Right, like, because when I read the Bible, I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe, 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 maybe I don't see that. Let's go to Matthew 3. Matthew 3 is the baptism of Jesus. And this is how Matthew writes it. He says, right, Jesus is baptized. And as he rises out of the water, he says this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, right, so you have, God the Son is in the water. Visualize this. God the Son is in the water. As soon as he was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him, right? 
Son is in the water. Simultaneously, the Spirit is descending. Simultaneously, the Father, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son. Now the Father is simultaneously speaking. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You have all three persons of the Godhead at one time acting in human history. Ant-Man cannot do that. Ant-Man needs to pick and choose. The Holy Spirit is three in one and therefore can act simultaneously in history. That's what we see in Matthew 3. He is one God, three persons, right? He's not Ant-Man. Now you might be wondering, why is it then necessary? Why is it necessary for God to be a trinity in order to save us? Okay, a couple things. One, what we see, God is the one, the Father is the one who sends the Son. He is the one who condemns sin on the cross. The Son is the one who becomes human. He inaugurates the kingdom and he offers himself for sin. Simultaneously, the Spirit empowers the Son or empowers the Jesus, right, in his humanity to live as a human. He raises Jesus from the dead and he applies the work of Jesus according to the will of the Father to humanity, right? So you have all three members of the Trinity acting simultaneously in our salvation. Now I realize you probably came in, you thought superhero movies, this is going to be super light. And you've realized that superhero movies are actually a fascinating win into deeper theology, into our cultural moment. Now you might be wondering, okay, so what do I do with a sermon like this? Like I've realized on some level, we're wrestling with some theological issues, right? Jesus as God, Jesus as fully human, Jesus and the Father and the Son are as Trinity. What do we do with this? I have one tip and it's this. One of the best ways to respond to a sermon like this is not to create a checklist of all the ways to apply it, but to simply recognize and celebrate that you are not your own hero in your story that God is, right? That Jesus is the Savior, that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the ones who rescue and save us. And we can respond to him simply this week by just saying, you know what? Thank you. And as we invite the worship team up, that actually one of the ways that we can respond to Jesus as Savior, to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the true savior of humankind is simply by worshiping him, by turning our hearts and our minds to turn back to him and say, thank you, to say you are awesome, you are amazing, to recognize in this moment the love of the father which comes to us and awakens us and invites us to be in relationship to him. In the headiness of that message, there is a heart response to turn back to the Savior that we actually need, who's greater than Superman, greater than Batman, greater than Ant-Man, greater than all the superheroes that every fiction writer can construct, that Jesus is the actual Savior we need, and he is greater than all of them. Let's turn to God and worship. God, in the midst of this message, we just say, you are great, 
and you are holy. You are the Savior of the world. And that God, we need saving. That our world is a broken, broken place. And that there is a longing that Lois Lane gets at. That we don't want a Savior, but at the same time, we know that we need one. So we ask that you would come to us. You would draw near to us. You would help us wrestle maybe against our resistance to accepting the fullness of your sacrifice, the fullness of your gift of grace. In this moment where we draw near to you as the hero of salvation history, the one who rescues us.